0: Thanks for downloading show 85 of the C-Suite podcast that we're recording in partnership with Communicate magazine from their evolution of the annual report conference that's taking place in London. Uh, my name is Russell Goldsmith, and I'm going to be chatting with a few of the speakers from today's event, which we hope will provide a real overview of the issues being discussed. And so to kick things off, we are joined by May Ashelford, Director of Reporting Intelligence at Gather, and Marco Sullivan, Director of Corporate Reporting at PwC, who both took part in the first panel session here uh, this afternoon that looked at the UK's changing approach to corporate reporting. May brings an interesting perspective to the discussion as before working for uh, Gather, she spent six years at the FRC, the Financial Reporting Council. Uh, So May, how different has it been coming from the uh, viewpoint of the regulator to uh, representing the client side?
1: It's been a really interesting journey. It's been very eye-opening. I think I'm still quite new into my role, so I'm only nine months in, so I still kind of wear my regulator hat and um, I've shared some of my observations with my ex-FRC colleagues and when you see their faces at uh, some of the discussions we've I've had with clients, um, they are quite shocked. So it's really interesting to have moved from kind of the bubble of regulation and what you think should be going on to the reality of actually what does happen in sure. the real world.
0: Um, now you recently uh, wrote a really good uh, guest post on Communicate Magazine's website. I think it's in today's um, conference brochure as well. And so in that, you said that you sense we are on the brink of a period of significant change. I was just wondering if you can give a quick overview of some of the issues you were referring to uh, that will drive that that change.
1: Yeah, so I think um, your listeners will be aware that there's a lot of regulatory change coming through at the moment. So there's new corporate governance codes and there's new regulations regarding stakeholder engagement in Section 172. So although there's a lot of regulatory change, there's a lot of change in societal expectations. So, um, investors are demanding greater amounts of ESG information. There's a lot of more consumer activism, uh, shareholder activism, kind of rebelling against things like um, fat cat salaries and environmental impact. And I think collectively there's so much unrest in the environment that companies operate in at the moment that I think something has to change. And regulation is a response to what's happening around us. And I think that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. And I think investors and consumers will have a big impact on what happens in boardrooms and how companies justify their license to operate.
0: Sure. Mark, um, let's bring you in at this point as well. I mean, a- any thoughts on, on you know those issues that May was just suggesting?
2: Well, I mean, undoubtedly, as, as May said, I think um, we are going through some significant uh, regulatory change that will challenge, I, arguably, the role of the annual report. Um, in terms of how companies and, and specifically boards better demonstrate the impact they have on society and, and, and the sort of stakeholders they take into account in their decision making. And this this is a, there is a regulatory theme here, regulatory change, but the societal pressure I think has been noticeable in the the number of companies voluntarily adopting some of these changes ahead of the regulation coming in just sort of sees that there's this groundswell of a movement here that companies are responding to.
0: Right. Um, Now, you started the session uh, today sharing some of the findings from PwC's annual look at the, uh, the FTSE 350 reports. I don't know if you've looked through all 350 of those. Not
2: personally. I'm not. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm a wow at parties, but no, not personally.
0: <laughs> um, well, what I was just wondering, though, is if you can share some of the highlights from the, uh, the report that, that you've done on those reports.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I think there's it, it's always a challenge to sort of talk about um, the changes in reporting because, if I'm being honest, the, the improvements in the quality of reporting sort of moves at glacial speed. But there has been sort of a, a noticeable impact on reporting sort of one big change and a couple of, of um, underlying sort of frustrations I think so fundamentally um, the whole stakeholder agenda what we were just discussing has had that impact on annual reports we're seeing a lot more of a discussion um, from companies recognizing their stakeholders and talking about who they're, who they're engaging with I think if I'm honest a lot of that feels like it is companies sort of doing control F shareholders and replacing the phrase with stakeholders rather than reporting something meaningful. But it's uh, certainly a sign of of the direction of travel. I think what we're going to have to start to see in the reporting cycle coming next year is really companies better demonstrating what they're doing with that engagement and what impact it's having on, on, on decision making and more importantly I think the role of the board. But So that's a big shift that we've seen in reporting I think the continuing challenges we've seen is one I think companies are grappling with providing the long-term perspective in their corporate reporting I think we, I think that's stalled companies are, are mindful of providing a picture of, of, of the future and therefore a lot of annual reports are sort of very much in the moment and the other one I think is is the, the challenge of telling one coherent story Huge amount of regulation being thrown at an annual report, and companies are just simply struggling to connect all the various different moving parts.
0: May, can you share some examples of how you're working with your clients to adapt, you know, their reports? I, I know you probably can't mention specific names, but it'd be good to get some generic insight into that.
1: Okay, so um, at our agency, so we're a strategic corporate communications agency. The way we approach it is that we think communication should be a story. And so when we um, start working with a client in terms of the annual report, we start talking to them and trying to find out what is your unique story, and thinking about how you can map that against the regulatory requirements that obviously you need to disclose in your annual report. I think one of the challenges that our clients face is that, and it's a practical challenge, is that often when you come to do the annual report, you have several authors trying to generate content for one document that should read as one story written by one person, and they really struggle to get this golden thread and this coherency through their book through their annual report so what we try and do is we're kind of the objective outsiders listening to what they have to say and often they have really amazing stories and really great case studies but none of that comes out in their communications whether it's in the annual report or on their corporate website and really kind of pointing out that hey do you actually know that you're really good at let's say sustainability and they're like well yeah we know that and we're like yeah but you're not communicating that so our approach is very much taking a kind of partnership role with them and really thinking about right this is the messaging you want to get out these are the great things that you've got to tell people about these are the regulations that you need to follow so let's let's put it all together and create a book that actually does have a beginning a middle and an end and does read like one person has actually written it.
0: I want to um, just pick up on something that was uh, discussed within your session. It, it came out in, in the kind of question and answer bit at, at the end of it. Um, you shared the, the panel with um, Phil Fitzgerald, who's a director at the Financial Reporting Lab um, at the FRC. This comes back to you You, you were talking about ESG uh, earlier. And I appreciate the annual report is, is one set of uh, information that that investors can look at, and um, he was talking about on, on specifically on ESG uh, data sets where people are getting their information from. He was saying that there's, there's potentially up to, uh, or some investors are using a hundred different data sets when assessing investment, you know, around ESG on, in, in companies. Yet only three come from the company, or on average three come from the company itself is that i'd be keen to get your thoughts on on you know the amount of information that's out there and how uh, trustworthy aspects of it can be
2: yeah i mean I, it, it's an amazing fact and and you know technology is transforming you know all our, all walks of life um and it's always struck me that the whole annual reporting process has almost remained relatively immune to that whole process and arguably, the mindset of those preparing the information to put in the annual report has stayed the same. So, you know, it, it's no longer the point that there's a single source of corporate information out there that companies control. And yet, you may experience the same. A number of times, companies are, well, we're not going to put that out. It's either competitively sensitive or we don't need to or we're going to manage our message and the reality is you can't anymore. And, and companies that really do try and manage their message and control that, actually, I would say, probably destroy rather than build trust, because there's so many different sources of information out there that users are using to corroborate, preempt, um, and, and build forecasts, that actually this is just one part of, of, of a reporting supply chain.
0: But what about where those sources are coming from? Because one, one of the examples he used was Glassdoor which for those I'm sure most people know but it's like employee reviews and you could get one disgruntled employee puts up a bad review of their their experience at the company and that's obviously going going to have a massive influence on on the positive or negative view of of that business and it's always easier to give a bad oh well I think anyway it's always easier to give a bad review than it is to give a positive one so how trustworthy for the or, or, or how fair is is that information that data set let's let's say you use that one as an example in terms of when you're looking at the investment opportunity
2: i mean i I, 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 yeah, I know I, we're kind of
0: veering away from the annual report. Here, well, but, I, I,
2: but, but if we bring it slightly back to the annual report first before, before I mean, I think one of the things that, uh, that one of the reasons why investors and arguably other users um, say that the annual report, despite um, some of its issues, remains a critically important document is because of the rigor that lies behind it. The number of people from the sort of management to the exec, to the board, to the lawyers, to the auditors and so forth have, have gone through it gives it some some kudos and and some credibility Um, these other sources however don't quite have that so you know wearing my pwc hat there's a massive opportunity out there to build, build build credibility with some of those data sets but at the same time with so much data and so much information out there it doesn't necessarily matter if if one piece of data isn't quite accurate because you've got 99 others to corroborate the story so i think there's an interesting development i think in terms of you know, what's expected of the quality of information. Um, and I think over time, the more credible sources will be used, but others will be sort of tapped into where, wherever possible.
0: Okay. So, uh, May, simple question then. What does the uh, the future hold? We're here discussing the evolution of the annual report. What's going to happen in the, in the future?
1: Well, I really hope, from my perspective, that we can drive quality in corporate reporting. So, I'd like, my dream would be that all of my clients are kind of held up as exemplars of... And your reporting. But I think given the current climate in terms of all the upheaval and the changes in regulations and societal expectations, I think it's going to be a long journey. Uh, Obviously, technology will hold um, an important role in what the future might bring, um, how AI might be used, how we generate information, analyse it and consume it. You know, we're already going to be seeing XBRL reporting coming in next year. I think that's just the start Tip of the iceberg. So I think it's a watch this space.
2: Mark, any thoughts on that? I mean, if I had a crystal ball, um, look ahead five years, I'd like to see technology really um, help users consolidate the information they want to receive at the time they want it in the format they want it. And as a result of that, I think the annual report will still have, or an annual report will still have a critically important role to play in helping the users understand and, and paint a picture of a company's performance and, and progress. But my other wish, I think, is a complete sort of rewrite of the regulations to help the annual report be a document for the 21st century. So, technology to allow you to consume it, regulation to help present an annual report that, that is fit for purpose, and as a result of that, sort of a single document that still works for many.
0: Maybe a discussion for another podcast. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, that's great. Uh, May uh, Ashelford, Mark O'Sullivan, O's thanks for uh, taking the time to chat to us today.
2: Thank thanks you. Thanks for having us. <laughs>
0: So we've just come out of the the conference. It's a little bit louder now in the networking session. But joining me now are Tom Bell, Director at MSL, and Sarah Wood, Head of Digital Insight and Engagement at Salter Baxter. Thank you very much for joining us. Tom and Sarah are going to be uh, hosting a session along with uh, Kerry Cooper, who we're going to be speaking to a little later in the the podcast. Kerry is the Senior Manager for External and Group Communication and Marketing at Mondi Group. Um, But we'll hear from Kerry in a little while. But uh, the session is titled Beyond Reporting, driving reputational uh, resilience. Tom, do you want to give us a little overview of what you're going to be covering in that session? We're ultimately talking about making sure that a company's annual report
3: returns as much value as it possibly can and the stories within it are told to as wider groups of stakeholders and audiences as possible. We're going to take you through some examples of some Uh, Companies that we believe are doing some really interesting things, utilising all of the channels at their disposal to really drill down into the stories of value from within their organisation that actually build fundamentally uh, reputational capital in their business.
0: Sarah, is uh, your argument that companies are not focusing enough on telling these stories in in their uh, reports?
4: Yes, I think so, in the sense that Obviously, all companies spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of resource and investment in creating the reports in their own right. They spend a lot of time thinking about how those stories within the reports support their strategic priorities, support and represent their business value and and provide proof points for their business across time. I think what we're claiming or, or sort of positing is that... What they don't do so much of is to think about having got all of those stories together, how they can then be repurposed, how they can be better targeted, written in a certain way to appeal to a much wider audience. At the moment, the investor and analyst audience is first and foremost and priority, as indeed it should be. But we, of course, can see across society, across the sort of 18 24 months, as we've seen a rise in consumer activism, that actually many more audiences beyond investors are actually looking for this information they're looking to understand much more about how businesses are responding to societal need are addressing our biggest environmental challenges and um, are setting foundation that isn't just resilient for the business but is actually resilient for us as a society going forward and that's really what we're trying to unlock and unpick is is there a smarter way for us to create that content in the very outset it will serve a better and stronger purpose in terms of communications around your reporting moment.
0: Um, in, in terms of the environmental issues, Tom, your, your colleague Simon Harrison wrote an interesting uh, article in the conference brochure. I was reading it just before uh, we came to do this interview. And in there, he's, he's written about um, VW's reputational resilience. I was just wondering if you could maybe just share some of those thoughts with our listeners, obviously, who haven't got access to that, um, but also why it's such an interesting case study.
3: I mean, of course, the VW's emission scandal was massive and um, for many companies around the world, indeed, some of vw 's main competitors, they would have struggled to recover from uh, such a scandal of such uh, scale and, uh, and importance. But VW were not only a, a company that 's been operating for uh, decades but also as part of the German manufacturing industry, they have actually spent many, many years building a bank of reputational capital in the way that they have communicated not only there in their offer, but also just German manufacturing more generally. So when the time became tough, it is our view that VW actually managed to quite cleverly section off the reputational damage um, and they could rely on and they could dive into much of that banked reputational capital to allow them to recover quickly.
0: And actually, uh, as Simon points out in his article come back much stronger. And how does that link with, obviously, the the key topic today in terms of the evolution of the the annual report?
3: As Sarah was saying, we believe that in many, many annual reports, there are incredible stories of value that at the moment are not being exploited quite to the extent that they should be uh, in order to build that uh, reputational capital that will need to be drawn on in the bad times. Crises are increasing the deloitte 2018 report around resilience showed that 60 percent of uh, senior executives believe that in the last 10 years the number of crises that their organization its organization is has is facing or has faced has increased um so if there is that certain level of ne- inevitability you need
0: to plan in the good times for those bad times sarah w- what approaches is, is your consultancy recommending clients take at the moment then
4: well it's more of an, a mindset rather than just an approach and we call it campaignable reporting and really it's a way of thinking about your those stories and content from the outset. So in effect if you think of the report and the amount of content and stories and proof points that are in that report and think about not it's sort of disclosure and regulatory requirement, but actually just as a huge, rich dep- repository of information and stories. And then think from a communications and uh, stakeholder engagement perspective and think, actually, what value would that, that content provide a conversation with those stakeholders and how could it enrich that engagement? So that's really what's at the heart of campaignable reporting from the outset. It's about thinking of it not just as a report supported and promoted through a press release and through shareable assets and content, but actually thinking of a report as a centre point for a potential engagement campaign to reach out to a range of different audiences and stakeholders in interesting, meaningful ways, and that's really important that it has to be meaningful. And so it gives you the cues and clues to think about how you would craft those stories from the outset. The subsequence to that, of course, is that it tends to also lead to better and more engaging content. So the report tends to be much more readable if we can access that kind of approach.
3: And it moves us away from this single moment of time piece that is attached to annual reports. And it allows you really to think of uh, of kind of how to deliver your messages over a much longer period, potentially up to the full 12 months.
4: I was going to say, and, and really it's about making it's about being more efficient and making more of the process that you're already going through so it's it's getting more value more return on investment of that reporting activity
0: okay well it's suddenly got a lot quieter here because everyone's gone back into the main uh, hall I know uh, you guys didn't want to miss the next session so I'm I'm just going to finish this off and just ask you what the key um, sort of message is that you want those here today and, and obviously those listening to the podcast that you want them to take from the session that you're about to present
4: I think for me it's very much a case of think less, or think not only about what the report needs to say about your business, but think also about the value that you can get from that report. So what are the strategic priorities, the critical messages, who can you serve that to? So I'd just like to leave you, if I may, with with one example from Apple. In their environmental report released last year, obviously a critical core to their strategy is e-waste. E-waste is a growing significant environmental challenge for our society, and we are seeing 50 million tonnes of e-waste being produced each year. That's the equivalent to 4,500 Eiffel Towers in terms of weight, which would cover an area the size of Manhattan. And that's just in one year, and it's set to over-double over the next few years. So for Apple, this has always been a strategic priority for them and a strategic concern. And what what they've recently done is they launched Daisy Uh, a disassembly recycle bot that could create and disassembly phones in a really speedy fashion. Um, This, of course, helps them deliver or or move towards a closed-loop society in terms of extrapolating and extracting precious resources and being able to repurpose them into the next device. What was really interesting, aside from the strategic priority message, was actually how they conveyed DAISY and how they introduced DAISY to the world. DAISY was introduced to the world through the front cover of the Apple Environment Report itself, What was even more interesting was then how they supported the report. They actually delivered and launched the report on World Earth Day at a moment in time where audiences across the world were looking more closely at solutions to some of those big priority challenges. It generated not just press releases, but huge conversation which tapped into the army of Mac influencers, bloggers and vloggers, giving them greater exposure, giving them greater understanding, greater awareness around their activity than they would have done through more traditional measures. That, for me, is a great example of what we mean by campaignable reporting. It's taking a strategic priority, delivering it in a way... That helps support and drive reputation as well as um, create fresh, engaging, and innovative ways of communication without actually doing anything different to the report itself.
3: And from a reputational perspective, clearly it's a great example of proactive issues management, getting on the front foot. one of the world's if not the world's largest company but getting on the front foot of something that they is already a problem and something they see is going to become an increasing problem for their business moving forward
0: that's tremendous well uh you guys better get back into the session but for now uh tom bell sarah wood thank you so much for joining the show
4: you're listening to the c-suite podcast to listen to all previous shows in the series you can either visit c follow us on soundcloud or subscribe to us on itunes spotify or in any one of your favorite podcast apps Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do.
0: Welcome back to the C-Suite podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, here at Communicate Magazine's Evolution of the Annual Reports Conference. And next to join me following her talk here is Helen Baker, Head of Secretariat at Coca-Cola European Partners. Thanks for joining the show, Helen. Um, Maybe you could just start by quickly explaining where Coca-Cola European Partners sits within the overall group structure.
5: Yeah, sure. So um, Coca-Cola European Partners was created through a merger back in May 2016 of three bottling organisations. So bottlers, uh, sometimes they're part of the Coca-Cola organisation themselves, sometimes they're independent companies. We're an independent company, although Coca owns about 19% of us. And basically, it was created from the German bottler, the uh, Iberian bottler, although that included Iceland as well, slightly strangely. And then um, also from the bottler who looked after Great Britain, France, Norway, Sweden, and and other parts of Western Europe, uh, although that was a US headquartered company with all its operations in Western Europe.
0: Right. Okay. So interesting bringing all those companies together. In terms of the reporting, I was wondering, and I'm sure we'll come on to this you know if if that creates a few challenges,
5: yes, so as a result of the the merger of those three entities, we're actually listed on uh seven exchanges in wow. four countries okay um so uh, and therefore have to comply with more than one set of reporting requirements so Yes, that was that was been quite an interesting journey. That's a few more journey. complications to your job. It certainly is, yeah. But we're we're really proud of the fact that we've managed to combine everything into one document, so we meet uh, all the requirements that we need to, mainly in the UK and in um, the US, um, in the one document. But actually, in terms of the kind of history and and people who had the experience of doing that public reporting that really came from the US company Uh, and so the reporting approach certainly in the first year post-merger very much mirrored the US style uh, of annual reporting.
0: Well, I want, I want to um, go a little bit deeper into that that journey you've taken in terms of the, the reporting from that merger to, to now, because um, obviously you, you've been invited to present here today as one of the shortlisted companies in Communicate Magazine's Corporate and Financial Awards 2019 in the best printed report uh, for international uh, category. So uh, congratulations on, on that. Can, can you um, carry on that, that journey that you know, you were talking through there in terms of how you've got to that that point then.
5: Sure. So um, in 2016, we were very much uh, on a compliance-focused approach to our annual report and uh, they they actually did that in quite a short space of time. Obviously, they'd been very focused on the merger and, and then it suddenly crept up and we had an annual report to produce. Um, so they produced a fully compliant report, but very much a kind of text heavy um, US influenced report, I would say. Um, so then in 2017, we wanted to try and give it a more European feel, um, which really means including some more diagrams, some more pictures, more tables, trying to break the text up a bit and make it more accessible to people. And then in 2018, um, so the report that shortlisted, it was very much about integrating the sustainability piece and producing an integrated report for the first time that really talked not just about the financial performance, but also the wider performance of the business and the non-financial side.
0: You, you mentioned there just about that U.S. Feel and then you you started saying about you know more diagrams and stuff. Can you go into a bit more detail in terms of what the differences between U.S. and European reporting styles would be?
5: Yeah, so our U.S. reporting we have to report on what's called a Form 20F um, as a foreign private issuer, and that's quite prescriptive in what you have to talk about. Um, so it has very specific sections, and within each section, there are certain things you have to talk about. Even in some sections, it specifies you know the specific table you have to use. So it's really quite structured, whereas in the European and UK um, model, whilst there are certain requirements you have to meet, you've got a lot more freedom about how you structure that within your report and as long as you can show that you have met all the requirements, it's not the case of, you know, this item must appear in this paragraph, um, whereas in the US it's very much, you know, item 8 is dealt with in this paragraph and item 8 says this and so you report on that there, whereas we can, we can do it much more um, in the style of telling our story, I'd say In Europe,
0: and so continuing that that development of of the report, how did the whole process come together? I mean, I'm assuming you do in-house, but work with agencies as well.
5: Yeah. So uh, ahead of the 2018 report, we ran a tender because we were because of the integration of the annual report and the sustainability side of things into the integrated report because we had separate agencies working on the two reports before, Um, and part of the approach there was to appoint someone who could really help us um, to, to to move along on that integrated um, path. And so we uh, ran a pressure cooker very early on in the process to really kind of work out exactly what we wanted to say, how we wanted, to, what the messages were, how we wanted to communicate them, and so therefore what that story was that we were trying to sell. Never heard the it report. called a pressure cooker before.
0: <laughs> Is that an internal coat?
5: Uh No, it's what the agency called it. Actually, oh, okay. they called it a pressure cooker, and the I- the idea being that you're trying to get them in. You know, you've only got two hours, and by the end of this two hours, we yeah. are going to have an answer. Um, and it worked really well, actually. Okay. Yeah. So then um, following on from you know the pressure cooker and having identified the key messages, it then really became about the delivery. So it was very key that um, everybody was aligned on those messages. We had uh, a steering group who had the kind of ultimate sign off and then a working group who were actually producing all the content. So it's very much a team and collaborative effort.
0: And so why do you think you've... Been shortlisted for the award. What have you done in particular different to anyone else?
5: So I guess some of the things. So we've actually got more content in our annual report this year, but in fewer pages, and okay. fewer words. So it's proof that you can include more, but in in less space, I guess. Um, and I think because that's always the thing. You know, you say, oh, we're going to add this extra content in. And the temptation is that you literally take the two reports that you used to have and stick them together. But we very much didn't want to do that. We were very disciplined about going through and trying to avoid repetition and stripping out unnecessary words, trying to use really clear, transparent, consistent language.
0: Well, I suppose that has... A double effect as well because it's easier to read but I guess yeah. better less printing yep, in terms of amount of paper you're using yeah I'm, so I'm we assuming.
5: were we were 5% shorter so right. maybe not a huge amount but it was still shorter and we're still very proud
0: <laughs> and, and what about in terms of the actual print runs that, that you do
5: yeah so um, we took uh, quite a lot of time about three months of uh, discussions with lawyers and providers over in the US um, where most of our shares are, are listed and, and where we're kind of still driven by quite a lot of the requirements there and we had to really um, look into exactly what we needed to uh, print so in 20 for the 2016 annual report we printed 10,000 copies 2017 we managed to cut it down to 5,000 and then uh, this year we managed to cut it down to 750 and I was told that I would get lots of requests, and I can tell you I have had precisely none. Oh, really? <laughs> so uh, all those US shareholders who I was told were going to be absolutely aghast at having lost their printed annual report, don't seem to be bothered at all, and they're quite happy to look at it online yeah. as we thought they would be. Yeah.
0: Um, just going back to something you know, you were talking about at the start in terms of the, the number of different countries that, that you represent, do you localise that that report, and then does that… You know, so the ad-
5: the integrated report, we don't know, um, but some of the sustainability reporting in particular, because that does tend to get um, a lot of interest locally, as you might expect from local communities and things. So some yeah. of that is localised, yeah, and we produce specific... Fact sheets and data for particular countries, and that's that's translated as well.
0: Okay, yeah. so just summing up, then, what would your advice be to those in a similar role to you, looking to redesign uh, their organisation's annual report? Uh,
5: so, I guess you can successfully integrate your financial and your uh, sustainability reporting, and you can do it in in fewer pages. Don't don't let anybody think that you can't. It does require discipline. But, you know, if you're prepared to put the work in, um, it can definitely be done. And it's, it's little things like you might have three different requirements you're trying to meet where they all require a disclosure on, say, share capital, and they all require something slightly different. But is there a way that rather than having three paragraphs each answering each individual question, you can come up with one slightly longer paragraph, but that answers all three questions? So we put quite a lot of effort into that. And I guess the other thing, clearly, uh, don't let anybody tell you that in the US you need lots of printed reports. And if you need some help, come and talk to me because I'm (laughs) happy to give you some tips. Fantastic.
0: (laughs) And I assume they just search for you on on LinkedIn to find you? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. OK, well, uh, Helen Baker, uh, thanks for joining the show and um, good luck at the awards later this month.
5: Thank you. (laughs)
0: And so we come to our final interview of the day, which is with Kerry Cooper, Senior Manager External and Group Communications and Marketing at Mondi Group. Welcome to the show, uh, Kerry. Thank you. Now it's a little bit loud because we've um, just finished the, uh, the conference and everyone's outside now uh, drinking their wine and, and uh, eating their nibbles. But um, Ke- Kerry was part of the last panel session, uh, which was titled Beyond Reporting, Driving Reputational Resilience. And that was with Sarah and Tom, who we obviously spoke to a little earlier in the podcast. Now we heard Sarah and Tom's overview before the session. Kerry, how did the, the panel session actually go for you?
6: I think it went well. Uh, for me, the, the interesting thing is that we're all grappling with very similar issues. So in a way, it's quite nice to spend time with a, you know, with a group of people who are coming from similar similar but different backgrounds, but all contemplating the same things, trying to get to the same place. And the conversation is really moving quite quickly, towards what people are needing from reporting and I think as communicators that's our real opportunity is to think about not only what we want to communicate but also how do we make sure that that information is getting to the right people in the way that it's easy for them to access the level of information that they want and the reason why it's important is because there's just such a huge volume of information being communicated around reporting that it sometimes becomes quite hard for people to get to what they're looking for.
0: So would you say there's more pressure on your own company in this area, given your business's packaging and paper? And obviously, I was looking at the website before doing this interview, and one of your key messages that that comes across quite clearly is about delivering innovative and sustainable solutions in in that space. I mean, we've heard a lot about environmental sustainability. what's, What's the viewpoint from Mondi?
6: You're absolutely right. It's, a, it's been an interesting time to be in the packaging industry. and The spotlight is, is very much on us. Uh, the world is looking for solutions. We all know that um, the level of waste that's going into the environment, both into, into oceans but also into, into landfill, is unsustainable, and we have to take action. I think for Mondi, uh, having come out of um, a very solid manufacturing background, um, originally part of Anglo-American and, and the mining industry, sustainability is, is not new on the agenda for us. Uh, we produced our first sustainability report um, back in the early 2000s, um, and so things effectively
0: of, leading the way, really.
6: Uh, we like to think so, <laughs> but also also having to learn a lot along the way too. Sure. Um, so I think that although it's not new for us, the, the landscape is changing so quickly and the conversations are becoming much more real because it's touching consumers. Uh, whereas in the past we, we were a little bit under the radar so although our practices were very good and our sustainability practices have had to, had to be strong because it's fundamental to being able to, to operate as a, as a paper and packaging company we haven't had to have as much um, emphasis on the way that we communicate our, our sustainable practices and certainly we haven't had the interest from end consumers in how their, their goods are packaged so for us um, the way that we communicate has, has changed radically in the last year.
0: Helen Baker from uh, Coke who we just spoke to was talking about you know reducing the print runs on her annual reports. is that something that you've also looked at at all?
6: So for I, I think for me that it's it's all about being being fit for purpose so we would produce the number of reports that we we need uh, for our, our stakeholder base or for our shareholder base. That need to receive it in print, and um, and also a number of our our businesses use it as a as a marketing tool to show how uh, how beautiful a report can of look course. if it's uh, <laughs> if it's printed on on great paper, and also it's it's a good opportunity for us to show that um, that paper when it's coming from sustainable fibre, it's a it's a useful a useful resource, and and paper we always still need paper, but. The conversation has to be around making sure that we, we source paper uh, sustainably and it's exactly the same conversation that we're having in packaging because packaging can't disappear um, We we know that you know, to protect goods, to prolong the life of goods packaging is necessary so the question really has to then be around how do we make it fit for purpose. And the, the perspective Mondi's taken is that uh, where possible, packaging should always be made from fiber, from paper. And only when necessary should it be, be made from, from plastic. And from a, a, a customer perspective, the conversations that we're having now with, with our customers, large FMCGs are probably one of the, the, those key customers for us, is uh, not around getting rid of packaging. But around making sure that the packaging that you choose is exactly the the right packaging for what you're trying to produce, um, and and that's where it's about being thoughtful, being mindful, and and not just packaging things for the sake of it.
0: Very good. Um, listen, I, I, I want, want to let you get back to uh, everyone else who's who's enjoying their drinks here. So, as our last guest, you have the last word of the podcast. Uh, what, what would you say has been the you know the key takeout from this this whole conference today?
6: the key takeout for me is that uh, reputation is important, um, reporting is, is one of the tools at your disposal to, to help people understand what your business is doing and in order to build, uh, build reputational resilience you need to make sure that the way you're reporting is authentic and, and that it uh, is, is inherently representing what's happening in the business.
0: That's great. Thanks so much, uh, Kerry, for joining us. And in fact, that wraps up this episode that we're recording at the Evolution of the Annual Report Conference. So thank you to all my guests who took time uh, to chat to us today and to the organizing team at Communicate uh, Magazine for making it happen. Uh, We'd love to hear any comments that you may have on any of the issues discussed in today's four interviews. And so if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do that on our Facebook page, Twitter feed or LinkedIn and Instagram pages. They're all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via the likes of iTunes and Spotify. And if you do use iTunes, please do give us a positive rating and review as that helps us up the business charts. Of course, you can find us on any podcast app. Just search for The C-Suite Podcast and hit subscribe. Finally, if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact form on the website or you can reach me via Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith or search for me on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.